Father, as we think about Go Week, we know it's, it's just one week out of 52 weeks, but we know how important it is to get us uncomfortable, to get us out of our routines, to sort of wake us up that there's more than just what's happening here any given Sunday. Lord, break those habits that some of us might have of not being intentional outside the walls. Lord, open us up to how we can serve in the name of Jesus and with the love of Christ, our neighbors, our community, and our partnerships that we have. Give us your creativity and your initiative, Lord, so that we can trust that that week is going to bear fruit. Lord, apart from you, we can do nothing. We know if we try to do this in our own strength, it will all be in vain. But Lord, if we do it and we abide in you as we've been singing, that Lord, we're going to bear much fruit. So watch over that, Lord. May we bear fruit as we open up your word today and discover what you have for us. Speak through me as we look at this psalm today and we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, My wife and I are into watching the show Alone on the History Channel. Any fans of Alone, the show Alone? All right, so there's a couple of you. For the rest of you, you're missing out. Uh, Alone's great. It's, uh, It's on the History Channel. It's many seasons now. Here's essentially the premise. They send 10 survivalists out into, like, the harsh, uh, you know, rugged wilderness somewhere, and uh, they send them out completely alone, isolated from all other human beings, and they have to see who lasts the longest. Pretty simple premise. Some of these people last 30 days, some of them 60 days, 90 days out there, uh, completely isolated from all other human contact, just surviving off of the land. It's pretty incredible. And uh, they can only take 10 items with them. The list of things that they can, take, uh, they can take, but 10 items is what they're limited to, and they choose carefully. And I was, Shannon and I were talking about this and thinking about it. I was like, hey, you know, if I, if I could choose something to bring with me, one of the things I'd bring is my Bible. And of course, I'm a pastor, you expect that, expect me to say I'm going to bring my Bible. Hopefully you'd bring your Bible as well. Uh, But I was thinking, you know, if I could only bring one book of the Bible, what book would I bring? And immediately, my mind went to the Psalms. If I could only choose from one book in the entire Bible, I would choose the Psalms. And here's why. The Psalms give us a complete array of the human experience, of human emotion, of ups, you know, mountaintop experiences like joy and celebration and the, those swamp experiences of life. You know, the pain, the loneliness and sadness and doubt and disillusionment. It kind of meets us where we are no matter what we're going through. But it doesn't just meet us there. It points us in a direction. It points us like a shepherd to the source of life that is God himself. The Psalms offer what Tim Keller calls a gospel-centered third way, and I think that's a brilliant phrase. There's there's really three ways that the world deals with their emotions. There's three ways that we can sort of handle our feelings. The first way we might call a religious approach, and whether it's a Western religion or it's Eastern religion, it really doesn't make a, a lot of difference. A religious approach, we might say as a detachment for emotions. A religious approach looks at emotions and kind of considers emotions as a bad thing. You know, emotions are bad, and so we kind of need to stuff those down. We need to put them in a box. Don't let them out too much. We need to ignore them or deny them. 
suppression of emotions. If you think about it, it kind of makes sense in a religious context because if we think that we earn favor with God or we are accepted by God or he, he supports our life based on our own behavior, then it makes sense that we would suppress our emotions. We don't want to let those out because it might hinder God's acceptance of us. And so instead, we, we deny them. We can't admit our own darkness and our own rawness. Maybe some of you grew up in a home like this where emotions were suppressed. You weren't allowed to feel or express your emotions. Some of you went to churches like this, you know? It's like you come into the church and the only acceptable emotion is happiness. You know, they scan you before you come in for all other emotions, you know? <laughs> Doubt, uh, fear, anxiety, worry. Yeah, those, you gotta check those at the door before you come in. <laughs> it's, it's like, uh, remember uh, the League of Their Own, Tom Hanks, and, and they're, you know, he, he sees the, the girl crying. He said, crying? There's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in church. Of course, unless it's, you know, tears of joy. And we get really good in, in a religious context. We can get really good at faking it, can't we? You know, we say, I'm not angry. I'm not angry. I'm not afraid. I'm not bitter. I'm not resentful. I'm happy. Can't you see? You know? And so that's a religious approach, but then there's also kind of a seemingly opposite approach, which we might call a secular approach, which is putting our emotions kind of on a pedestal. It's identifying with our emotions. Emotions are not only good, they're sort of God. Emotions are me. It's who I am. This is the coddling of emotions. You notice in society, we, we kind of no longer ask the question, what do you think about X, Y, and Z? What do we say instead? How do you feel about X, Y, and Z? See, emotions are sort of sovereign. They rule in our society. We are how I, we feel ourselves to be. And if anyone questions the validity of what you're feeling, well, man, you can expect outrage in our society. So there's two ways, two kind of opposite ways to think about emotions, but the Psalms present us a unique third way to deal with our emotions, not through detaching and suppressing emotions, not by bowing down to emotions and making them our very identity, but rather they show us how to pray our emotions. And not just pray about our emotions and feelings, but actually express them to the living God. Bring them in all their fullness and all their raw, you know, underdevelopedness and all their half-bakedness to God. Being able to express our emotions to him as our father. Pouring it out in his presence. In his presence. And in doing so, in this third way, what we find is it becomes an antidote to our greatest aches and longings of our soul that our emotions ultimately point to. And so really, that's what we're doing in this series. These eight weeks, we're going to address, through the Psalms, an array of raw emotions. We're going to be talking about uh, fear and hopelessness. We're going to be expressing bitterness and shame and feelings of revenge and uncertainty, just to name a few. And today, we want to get started by looking at the antidote to impulsivity and what we'll see is the emotions behind that. 
They say impulsivity. What is, what is that all about? What does that mean? Well, according to American Psychological Association, impulsiveness are actions without foresight that are poorly conceived, prematurely expressed, unnecessarily risky, and inappropriate in the situation. Right? That's impulsive behavior or impulsivity. Now, we're all susceptible to this, are we not? Every single one of us are susceptible to impulsivity in some way or form. It's why in our household we have a rule, no shopping while hungry. Okay, do you have that rule? Because when you shop when you're hungry, you end up with like $100 extra on your grocery bill. That's what happens. We're all, we can all be susceptible to a number of impulsive decisions and behaviors. For some of us, though, if we're honest, we can look back in our life and we see a pattern of how impulsive behavior has train wrecked our life. Or we see regrets of bad decisions that we made, impulsive decisions. Some of us have train wrecked relationships because of this. Some of us have train wrecked career opportunities or connections that we have. Some of us have burned bridges because of this or lost our financial shirt because of this. <clears throat> 1999, you know, things like that. Impulsiveness, it can be a major problem. Not only just for Christians and people in church world, but you know the New York Times called impulsivity recently an all-purpose plague. And it connected impulsive decision-making and behavior to things like this, high levels of job and relationship turnover, acts of violence, the, the, all kinds of addictions, overeating, gambling, alcoholism, smoking, substance abuse of all kinds, sex addiction, and financial ruin. Impulsiveness is eating people for lunch. And if our own tendencies weren't enough, our technology has enabled impulsivity to be kind of in our pockets. It's called the iPhone, right? It's called the smartphone. Do you know the average iPhone user touches their phone 2,617 times a day? And that's on the, some of you jaws are open right now. That's actually on the low end because that was five years ago, that statistic. It's a lot more than that now. On our phones, on our smart device, we can order late night takeout. We can access porn. We can place bets on the Sixers. Some of you bet, bet on the Sixers last night. And we can also order, you know, a new pair of shoes that we need, all, all on demand with a very swipe of a finger. You know, according to a recent survey, 89% of American adults uh, admit to succumbing to impulsive online shopping. And did you know that actually men uh, spend more money and have more transactions on online shopping than women do? Just so you know. Yeah, some of you are surprised at that. You know, we, we just eliminate stereotypes right here at Brandywine. And yet, do you know that after the purchase, many of these shoppers say 45% of them said they experienced regret, 20% are concerned that they don't have enough money, 10% said it resulted in a fight with their spouse. That number seemed low, at least from my <clears throat> experience. <laughs> Interestingly enough, there's actually no, no surprise here. There's an app for this problem. Did you know that? It's called Icebox. Any of you hear of Icebox app? So essentially, this is what this does. 
you can download this browser, and what it will do is it'll go on your Amazon page or whatever online shopping platform you use, and it will replace the Buy Now button with a button that says Icebox. And when you click on it, it automatically freezes your purchase for 30 days. You can't, you can't purchase anything until the end of 30 days. Some of you elbow the person next to you and say, you need this, right? And we could go on and on. This is just one example. But it's, it's a major problem. And some of us, this is one of the biggest presenting problems of our life, our impulsive feelings and behavior. Now, what is, it that, what is the emotion behind this? Why is it that we sometimes feel like it's inevitable that we're going to make these decisions? Well, I believe that the emotion deep down stems from feelings of, uh, we might say, unfulfilled longings of the human soul, of a sense of emptiness in the human heart. You know, as people, as human creatures, in our rebellion from God, we have a knack for fulfilling or trying, attempting to fill the empty uh, uh, feelings in our heart with things apart from God. I mean, we've been doing this from the beginning of time, haven't we? We're looking for substitutes from what only God can fill. Jeremiah 2.13 says it like this. God says, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they dug their own cisterns, that is, their own wells, Broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What a, what a powerful imagery, isn't it? Imagine you're just dying of thirst. You're so thirsty, and you come across a bubbling spring. I mean, it's just pouring out water, and you say, no, 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 no. I'm, I'm going to dig my own well. And so you start digging. You're sweating. You're just digging that well, and you get about 15 feet down. Finally, you hit water. I did it. And you got water. The problem is every time you go back to, to take a, a drink from that water and, you know, you send your bucket down, you go up, it's empty. Every time you hit water, it just dries out. It just goes right through the ground again. Meanwhile, there's an entire living spring right next to you. It's, it's ludicrous, and yet that's exactly what the human heart does. St. Augustine many, many years ago said, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee, O Lord. This is the problem of the human heart. But Psalm 130, this psalm we're going to address today, offers us an antidote, a third way, so to speak, to deal with impulsivity in our soul, to help us to no longer drink from those empty cisterns, those empty wells, and come up empty. And the antidote is maybe what you wouldn't expect. It is the discipline of waiting on the Lord. The discipline of waiting on the Lord. Did you hear what the psalmist said right in the heart of this psalm, verse 5 and 6? Let me repeat it. It says, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits, and in his word I put my hope. I wait on the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Now, how many of you love to wait? Raise your hand. Okay, that's what I thought. All of you were being honest. Last one of you said you like to wait. The last, there was one person down front in the last service that said they like to wait, and then their spouse was like, mm-mm, nope, they don't. <laughs> no, of course we don't like to wait. I don't like to wait. I don't like to wait in traffic. I don't like to wait, you know, for, for my, my pizza to be done. I don't like to wait anywhere, and neither do you. We don't like waiting. We want what we want, and we want 
we, we want it when we want it, and we want it five minutes ago. That's how we operate. And we've done almost everything we can in our society to eliminate, to eradicate waiting. We've got all kinds of technology to help us not ever have to wait. And as much as we've attempted to do this, there's still, there's still experiences where we have to wait and we get frustrated, don't we? Now, you could be on a plane and it's ready to take off the runway, headed to Texas, and the flight attendant comes on and says, um, <clears throat> sorry, passengers, um, we have a, uh, a mechanical issue and uh, we're gonna have to make you wait about 20 or 40 more minutes. We're so sorry for the delay. And everyone in the plane's like, oh my goodness, I can't believe this. Meanwhile, we forget like 100 years ago, that trip to Texas would take like three months and at least half of you would be dead by the time you get there. <laughs> We're so impatient. I mean, just in my own lifetime, we've gone from, I went from no internet, yes, I'm old, no internet to dial up to cable to high speed to 2G, 3G, 5G, 10G, we now have 10G, I don't know what 10G is, it's crazy. We traded, here's the problem though, with all the speed, with all the, the elimination of waiting, I think what we've done is we've traded depth of character for efficiency of time. We've traded depth of character for efficiency of time. Because here's the ancient truth that all the ancients, the followers of God like the psalmist, believed. They believed that waiting was essential to developing into a person of godly character, to develop a, a, into a person of trustworthiness, to a person of emotional and relational depth. Don't we want to be people of depth? We don't want to be shallow people, kind of skipping off the surface of life and relationships. We want to be people of depth. How do we get that? Waiting. One of the ways... I find this to be true today. You show me someone who's developed the discipline of waiting, and I will show you someone who's a person of depth. They go together like a glove. Now, it's not just waiting that will make you deep. I mean, you can wait at the DMV. You can wait uh, at the doctor's office. You can wait to heal from an injury and not turn into a person of depth, but you could turn into a person of grumbling. And there's lots of people that turn into a person of grumbling when they wait. So it's not the waiting itself. There's a way to wait that is a strong antidote that the psalmist points to. And so what we want to do, we want to look for the next few minutes together, three keys to developing that discipline of waiting. And I'm using that word discipline very intentionally. It's a discipline, something we have to work out at to master. All right? So here's key number one. You can write these down. Key number one, wait anchored in the gospel. Look at verse 1, Psalm 130, verse 1. Out of the depths I cry to you, Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Let your ear be attentive to my cry for mercy. If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness so that we can, with reverence, serve you. The psalmist says, out of the depths I cry to you. The depths here, is a, it's a Hebrew way of, of talking about the deep waters. It's like being in the, the ocean tides in above your head. And the, the waves are just crashing against you and tossing you. That's the imagery here. And what it is that's tossing the psalmist is some kind of sin issue, some kind of temptation or struggle. We're not told what it is, but we can see this 
in context. He's just getting hit by wave after wave, and he can't seem to find his ground. And so he's crying out to the Lord for help. He wants him to listen, and he's looking for the Lord's mercy. Now, what is it that gives a psalmist this ability to pray his emotions in such transparency and vulnerability to the Lord? What is it that makes this psalmist believe that the Lord is going to help him and come to his aid and give him mercy? Well, it is that the gospel is anchored, excuse me, the psalmist is, is anchored in the gospel. Do you see it here? He says, if you, Lord, kept a record of sins, who could stand but with you there's forgiveness? Now, maybe some of you uh, are, uh, in fact, many of you, are old enough to remember those big filing cabinets that people used to keep all the records in before we had the cloud, whatever the cloud is, right? Um, and, and I would go down in my, in my dad's office uh, when, he was, when I was a kid, and there would be these, just tons of these huge filing cabinets, and I'd pull them out, and I'd just kind of thumb through all of these files, all kinds of records of everything, who knows what. I mean, pages after pages of manila folders just all over. Some of you still have these in your basement somewhere, or in your office somewhere, and this is sort of the image. Imagine we, we die, we get before God one day. This is the image. It's imagine if every single sin that we've ever committed in our entire life, our whole rap sheet, is like these giant filing cabinets, and we pull them out, and there's page and page, category after category, age, you know, age and stage of our life with just every single sin we've ever committed standing before a holy God. This is the image. It says, who could stand? Well, we know the answer is rhetorical. None of us could stand before a holy God like that. You say, well, man, good thing he doesn't, God doesn't operate like that. Oh, hold on, hold on. Wait a second. God does keep a record of sin. He does. Revelation 20, describing the end when humanity meets God face to face, Revelation 20, verse 1, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. What are these? These are the accounting books of how we lived our life. It's the file cabinet. Here it is. The books were opened, and each person was judged according to what he had done. God is a God of justice. God is a God of righteousness. Ah, but the psalmist knows something else about who God is. He knows something else about the character of God, which is the same God of justice is also a God of mercy. He's also a God who provides a way, access to a way to be forgiven and to have our entire rap sheet, our entire filing cabinet or cabinets, depending on who you are, shredded. There's a way. Well, what is that way? Well, the psalmist anticipates the beauty of the gospel. Look at verse 8. It says, he himself, who is he himself? God himself will redeem Israel from all their sins. See, through the Holy Spirit, the psalmist recognized we can't do it ourselves. We can't shred all of that. We can't, we can't stand before God with all of that. We can't forgive or earn forgiveness ourselves. Someone else has to do it. Who's going to do it? God himself is going to do it. And here, the psalmist is, is prophetically speaking of the Messiah, speaking of Jesus Christ, who would hundreds of years later come as the God-man himself to pay for our sin and on the cross shred every single sin 
in that filing cabinet. Offering forgiveness to all who believe, all who trust in him and not their, their own works. This is the way. Not only to be told we're no longer under the law of sin and death, we're no longer condemned, but now we are forgiven and accepted and loved forever and ever. It's the gospel, and I hope that's what you're standing on and you don't think you're going to get there and give an account for all of those because you're not. Good luck. Only through Jesus Christ. And friends, this is what the psalmist is saying. When we're discouraged by those crashing waves of impulsive sin and temptation, when we feel like we can't stand, what do we do? We don't grit our teeth and white knuckle and try a little harder. We don't go into denial. We don't say, oh, well, I guess this is me. I guess there's nothing I can do about it. What do we do? We anchor ourselves in the gospel truth. Because on one hand, it means that we can be completely vulnerable with God. We can open up and cry to him. We can pray our emotions to him and know he won't reject us. And the other side, we don't have to give in because the power of the gospel anchors us and gives us a power to overcome our impulses. Anchor yourself in the gospel. That's the first thing the psalmist points us to. There's a second one, a second key. Wait with the word of God. Wait with the word of God. Notice in verse 5, I wait for the Lord. My whole being waits. And in his what? Say it out loud. In his word, I put my hope. In his word, I put my hope. The psalmist not only sees the gospel as an anchor, but the word of God is like a, like a sword to fight the temptation when it comes. The word of God, the scriptures, the Bible. The Bible contains the power and the promises to fight every single temptation that is known to human beings. Do you know that? The Bible contains a way to fight, the power and the promises to fight. I'll just give you one example, Psalm 119, verse 9. How can a young person stay on the path of purity? Oh, man, good luck. Oh, wait, what does it say? By living according to your word. Verse 11, I've hidden my word, excuse me, I've hidden your word in my heart that I might not, what? Sin against you. The Bible gives what I like to call fighter verses, fighter verses to battle the temptations when they're the hottest, to battle the impulses of sin. Fighter verses on everything, all kinds of temptation, on your sexual temptation, on uh, overeating, overspending, on gambling, on rash decisions, on alcohol use, on anger. I mean, you name it, Scripture addresses it. When I was in the season of my life, when I was really battling uh, addiction to pornography, and when I, was, when I was being tempted time after time to want to give in, I began using these fighter verses. Friends, let me, let me tell you, when, when you have the Word of God and you begin to memorize it, commit it to, to memory, when you take it and you put it on your computer, when you take different scripture and you put it next to your bed or put it on your mirror and you allow that to saturate you, it gives you the power. It gives you the power to overcome those impulses. I would memorize and, and put next to my bed scriptures like this, 2 Timothy 2.22, flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. Now, Scripture is not a, some kind of magic pill. It's not take two, you know, two of them and, and you're fine in the morning. Scripture doesn't work that way. 
Scripture's not some kind of like, you know, genie, you know, and, and it makes your problems go away. The power of the word comes from two things. It comes from one, trusting in the character and the promise of the writer, the author, which is God himself. And secondly, submitting yourself under the authority of the word. Submitting yourself under the authority of it. And when you do that, here's what happens. Over time, you take that scripture and you pray that scripture back to God. I need your help in this impulse. I need your help in this struggle. I'll wait with scripture. I'll fight with scripture. And here's what happens. Those impulses that feel like those waves and you're just, it's going to knock you over, they start to subside. Those feelings of emptiness and unfulfilled longings, they start to be filled with the living water of God. This is the promise. I've seen it in my own life. Some of you have as well. We fight with the word of God. Some of us fail every single time when those impulses come. Fail, fail, fail. Why? Because we're trying to hold on ourselves. I got this. I can do it. I'm going to do it alone. I don't need any help. And then we fall flat on our face. I'm going to try again next time. Over and over. How's that working for you? We've got to fight with the power that he's given us. Fight with the word of God. We wait with the word of God. Here's the third key. Third and final key. We wait with an expectant hope. Verse 6. I wait for the Lord more than watchmen wait for the morning. More than watchmen wait for the morning. Israel, put your hope in the Lord. For with the Lord is unfailing love. And with him is full redemption. Here's another vivid image of waiting, the watchman. Watchman, it's a beautiful picture. You know, there was a time, if you can believe it, when we didn't have, uh, you know, video cameras that we could put in our driveway or outside of our office. There was a day when uh, there were no alarm systems or floodlights. Well, how do you protect yourself in the night when things are most vulnerable? Well, you set watchmen on the wall. You set them outside the gate, and they would be on shifts watching through the night for anybody who would try to attack. Now, what does he say? He says, this watchman waits for what? Well, he waits for the shift to be over. And when's the shift going to be over? When the dawn breaks, right? When the, when the sun comes up, and we begin to see the sun shine, ah, my shift's over. I'm waiting like a watchman for the night, through the night, for the morning. There's an expectant hope that the morning is coming and the waiting will be over. This is the imagery of what it means to be a Christ follower battling those impulses, knowing, hey, it's tough in the night. It's hard, it feels long, but I expect there will come a time where the waiting will be over. The Lord will fulfill the Lord will take care of me. I do not need to give in to this. I'm going to be a watchman waiting on his promises. What are the promises that he looks to? He looks to two things. He looks to the promise of his unfailing love, that the covenant love, the wave after wave of love will, will combat the wave after wave of impulse. Could you see why the unconditional love could really help strengthen us in our times of greatest waiting? Think about how much People need love. I mean, isn't that what we're looking for in those unfulfilled longings and the emptiness? Isn't ultimately what we're looking for is to feel love? That's what we look for. Like every song since 1950, you know, that ever been written is basically about this, isn't it? About trying to get love, feel love, looking for love in all the wrong places, right? 
All you need is love. Love, love. Right? And every single other one that's ever been written. Why? Because our souls long for it. Do you know the number one factor for a child to thrive and be healthy throughout their lives? The number one factor, proven study after study, a committed presence and love of a parent particularly, namely a father or a father figure. Number one factor. And sadly, the converse is also true. You think God's trying to get us our attention about something? We need the unconditional love that the Father provides. And it's this which strengthens us in the night when those impulses, those unfulfilled longings are there, allowing the promise of the unfailing love of God to fill our hearts. But he points to a second promise, the promise of full redemption. And we sort of already hinted at this, that the psalmist is waiting in his impulses, waiting like a watchman because there's going to come a day of full redemption. He, again, through the Spirit, is looking for the return of the Messiah, the time when the, the, the Son is going to come and he is going to fulfill our ultimate longings of our soul. He is going to eradicate all temptation. Have we been redeemed? Yes, we have already been redeemed in the first coming of Jesus. On the cross, he frees us from the, the penalty of sin and the power of sin. We don't have to sin anymore, but there's going to come a time in his second coming when he returns where he eradicates the presence of all sin. There'll be a time, imagine, I can't wait for it, when you will never be tempted again. And ha- you'll never even have the experience of having an emptiness in your heart or a loneliness or a sense of unfulfilled longing in your soul. Isn't that amazing? It's coming, he says. We wait for it. Listen to how Paul puts it in New Testament terms. Romans 8, 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that that will be revealed in us. Talking about the second coming of Christ. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. That is, for us to be turned into sons and daughters of God, for that to be completely realized. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. For who hopes what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it, what? Patiently. What enables a psalmist to wait well? What enables Paul to wait well is the exact same thing. It's the expectant hope that it won't be long now. It's coming. The morning is coming. Oh, it seems like forever in the middle of the night. It seems like forever. If, you know, your impulse is toward overeating or binging, it seems like forever. You know, you, you wake up two in the morning with hunger pains and you, you, know, you go to the refrigerator. It seems like forever to wait. It seems like forever when we're waiting to be fulfilled with a relationship that we're just, we don't have in our life. It seems like forever when we're struggling with an addiction to alcohol or whatever, and we're going through that, those withdrawals, there's pain in the night, but there's joy in the morning. We can expect it won't always be this way. He will return. Friends, life is short, incredibly short. Eternity is long, incredibly long. A few more years. What is a few more years or even a few more decades in light of eternity? This is the mindset that enables the psalmist to overcome his impulses towards sin. 
and wait on the Lord. It's a mindset that says, hey, I don't need to have all my sexual desires and my relational longings to fulfill now because there will come a day when I'll be fully satisfied in eternity in the presence of God himself. I don't need to binge on sugar now. Why? Because I'm going to feast in eternity. I don't need to buy that you know, pair of shoes right now. Why? Because I'm going to be dressed in the splendor of God in eternity. Do you see it? Now listen, from the first moment I started talking about impulsivity, some of us, maybe many of us, felt like, oh my goodness, he's going to talk about me today. And there was an impulse or two or three that you say, oh my goodness, that's what it is. And the Spirit's been kind of pressing on you this entire sermon. And you've been squirming a little bit. And you can't wait until it's over. Because you're being, that's, that's in your face right now. Friends, how's that going? How you doing with that? Are, are you being tossed by the waves right now? Are you trying to, you know, just white knuckle it or den- be in denial about it? Or just, have you just given into it? Well, I guess this is me. Friends, there is a third way. The psalmist points us to that third way, being anchored in the gospel, waiting for the word with the word of God. Memorize those fighter verses. When you go home, Google, right? Google whatever your issue, your impulse is in the scriptures and print those out and put them everywhere. Trust in, wait in the word of God and wait with expectant hope. Hope It won't always be this way. Our Redeemer lives and our Redeemer is coming back. We're gonna close with a special song just to, to be sung over us. And as they're coming up to do that, let me just remind you of that great hymn, the words in that great hymn. They say, in every high and stormy gale, my anchor holds within the veil. His oath, his covenant, his blood supports me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. In Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. Let's pray. Father, when we are tempted by the waves and the flood, those impulses that come to us, that desire for satisfaction, those longings of the soul, that emptiness of the heart, Lord, meet us there. May we open our heart, be real with you, because you know, may we pray our emotions back to you, knowing that we will receive help and mercy in our time of need. Lord, let us be changed by your word today. May it start a new pathway, a new fork in the road where we make a decision that we're no longer gonna let impulses reign in our lives. Christ reign. Help us to wait on the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.